A few weeks ago, we read the story of Jesus' baptism, followed by his experience of the temptation in the desert wilderness. And these stories are interconnected. And it's so easy as we read the scriptures, as we read some of these stories, to take one story to pull it out, to take another story to pull it out, to take another story, and to find the different things that are happening in each of these stories and what they have to mean for us. And, and that matters. Sometimes that's important and that's a thing that we can do. But if we don't, when we're pulling those stories out and looking at them and trying to understand them, if we don't understand them within the context of the stories happening around them, sometimes we miss some important nuances. Sometimes we miss what's happening below the surface and at a depth that we can easily miss. And sometimes what we have a t tendency to do when we do this is we miss how these stories are interconnected. What is the author trying to do? How is he taking and weaving through these stories a thread that not only connects to these stories, not only connects to the people who are reading it in that context, in that time period, not only is it interconnected and weaving through for the people who are reading in that day, but how is that thread also weaving through this story and how do we follow that thread back? How do we see how that is connected back to the Old Testament stories, to the ancient Hebrew scriptures? How do we see how that informs how we understand the whole of scripture? Seeing that thread, seeing that interconnectedness matters. And it's a great tool for us as we begin to study and learn and try to understand what do the scriptures have to teach us and what do we find in the life of Jesus in this overall connection to this great story that we find in the Bible. At Jesus' baptism, we saw a confirmation on the calling of Jesus. We saw this confirmation on who he was and who he was meant to be and, and who, why he was here, what, who he is and what he's doing. We saw the confirmation of his calling as the Messiah, as the Savior that was promised throughout the scriptures. And then immediately when he went into the desert, we saw through a series of, of temptations that Jesus then faced the question of what kind of Messiah would he be? So we see the baptism of Jesus. We see a confirmation, a calling on his life that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior. Then we see him go into the desert and we see these questions come to Jesus through these temptations of what kind of Messiah is he? What kind of Savior is he? How would he save his people? And how does he expect the world to respond to him? To this huge calling, to his purpose, to who Jesus is, how will the world respond to him? And what's his expectation of how people respond to him? Now in this desert wilderness, he's alone. And he doesn't, he, he, he faces these questions, but this isn't the first time, this isn't the last time that he would face these kinds of questions. Remember, we have to see how these stories are interconnected. And what we find is that they go from here to here to here, all connected then one to each other. So we see baptism, confirmation of his life. We see his, his temptation in the wilderness. And then we see another interconnected story that took place after Jesus returned from the desert. We find Jesus facing these questions again of who would he be? What kind of Messiah is he? How does he expect people to respond to him? And this time, instead of being alone in the desert, the questions come from crowds of people who are beginning to wonder about his life, his teaching, and now what would it mean if they cho chose to follow him? What would it mean if they began to take his words seriously? What would it mean if they began to explore the way that Jesus is beginning to tell these people how they should live? And this is important to us.
Because part of our faith is coming to terms with and understanding what kind of Messiah, what kind of Savior Jesus is, and what kind of people we will be as followers of Jesus as we respond to his invitation to follow him. So who is this Messiah? Who is this Savior? What does it mean for Jesus to be Messiah? What does it mean to be Savior? What kind of kingdom is he establishing? These are the questions that Jesus faced in the temptation in the wilderness. These are the questions that Jesus faces with this crowd that he, uh, that he begins to preach to. And these are the questions that we ask. And to begin to understand these questions, begin to explore this and know and see what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Savior, and what does that mean for us as we choose to follow him? What kind of Messiah is he? What kind of Savior is he? And how we understand that is so critical as we seek to understand not only Jesus' mission in this world, but the mission that God has for his followers and the mission that God has for his church. So, let's begin this story. We're going to go to Luke 4, and we're going to see the questions that Jesus was given and how he responded. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I have to tell you, I, lo I love reading this moment from Jesus' life. This is one of those times that as I read this story, I can imagine the scene taking place. Sometimes at Southeast, what I like to do, whether we're in person or whether we're gathering like this, is I like to ask you sometimes to close your eyes. I like you to imagine the moment. I, I, I think that God has given us the senses that we have for a reason for us to understand this world. And I think that we need to use all of our senses and our imagination sometimes as we read these passages. To, to feel and to hear and to sense what it must have been like in those moments. And I can almost feel it. I, I can feel the anticipation in the synagogue as Jesus sat with others from his hometown. Can you imagine the people gather there as they look over and they say, Jesus, and, they, and they, they had heard all of the stuff that he had done. They heard about all the times that he had preached in all of these different synagogues. They had started to hear about all of the things that he was doing in their communities. And all of a sudden, here he is now in their synagogue. And I wonder if they looked over and they thought, what's going to happen next? What's going to take place? What is Jesus going to say? What's he going to do? So you can sense this anticipation taking place. And remember, he's sitting with people from his hometown. That adds a whole nother layer to this story. I can almost hear the sounds as Jesus stood up. He took the scroll in his hands and he unrolled it and he began to read. Can you hear the paper as he's unrolling the scroll? 
Can you hear kind of the hushed silence as people are waiting to see what he's going to read? Can, can you feel that as he stood up, the creaking of the bench? As he walks and you can hear his steps? Now, this is where we have to start to understand. So what is it about this synagogue? I talked about a creaking bench. I talked about the sound of his feet. If we understand, if we can begin to explore and, and see what is it about the synagogue? Are there, is there anything about this place that has to, something to tell us about this story? And the more that we dig, the more that we see, there's some important things here that we need to recognize. The synagogue is important because this context comes back to inform us where the story is about to go. So first thing, the synagogue was not the temple. The temple in Jerusalem held a very particular significance. So you had the temple where people would go, where, where uh, Jews would go. Uh, Jesus and his family went to the temple. People from all over came to the temple. Jesus goes to Jerusalem in the last week of his life. People gathered in the temple for grand celebrations. For uh, people, people would come from all over to, to come to the temple and to worship together. But the temple was special and the synagogue was not the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was understood as particularly holy because it was the dwelling place of God. It was the dwelling place of the Israelite God. And we have talked about this at some different times before. But this is important because of this, because it was built in such a way, the closer that you got to the center of the temple, the more inclusive or exclusive, I'm sorry, excuse me, the more exclusive that it became. So the closer you got to the inside of the temple, the closer you got to where the presence of God was understood to be, the more exclusive that the temple became. But the synagogue, the synagogue was different. The synagogue was built within each community. You didn't go to the synagogue. The synagogue was within your community. And all members, all of the members of the Jewish community could participate in the life of the synagogue. So we're already seeing a tension between exclusion and inclusion within this story. And that's what we need to keep in mind today because it is going to help us understand the context of the entire story. Jesus is in the synagogue. And there is a tension now between the temple that was this place of exclusion and the synagogue where all were included. Now with that in mind, listen again to verses 18 to 19. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, as he reads, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Going on, it says, then he rolled up the scroll. So he just finished reading from the spirit of the Lord is all the way down to the Lord's favor. He, he just read that passage. He rolls up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant, it says, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus reads this passage. 
And, and then he sits down in this particular seat called the seat of Moses. It was a seat of honor. It was a place where the person would read the passage and then they would sit down and they would begin to preach. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's telling us, here's what this text means. Here's what this text can mean for us. And here's what it means for me today. So he reads this passage and then he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now this is important. The readings for each gathering was predetermined. And this passage, Isaiah 61, was the passage Jesus was given to read. So he wasn't picking out his own passage that he wanted to read that day. This was the particular text that had been pre-chosen for this day in advance as every time that they gathered in the synagogue, they had different passages that were chosen for that particular day. So he's handed the scroll and Isaiah 61 is that passage. Now, most people sat on dirt, on, on, on small mats, Others then sat on these benches that were lined up against the wall I talked about earlier that Jesus would have been sitting against. And what would happen is a person would stand up, they'd go to the front of the room, they'd take the scroll, they'd read it, they'd sit down at that seat at the front of the room, and from there they would teach and share what the passage meant to them. Now this is really interesting here because it doesn't get really quiet. It tells us that after Jesus read from this passage that conversation began to break out. People knew who Jesus was, the things that he had already done. And then at this moment, what you see happens when he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. At this moment, Jesus publicly declared why he had come, what he would do, and how he was defining what it means to be the long-awaited Messiah and Savior. And the crowd recognized this. Listen to what it says in Luke 4.22. It says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Now, this is where the translation gets a little strange. And this is where I want us to look at a particular phrase that helps us understand what's going on here. And that phrase is, Amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Now, Jill, go ahead and pop this back up because this is important for us to see. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Now, this is important for us. This phrase matters. Jesus, in quoting Isaiah 61, in quoting from the book of Isaiah, spoke of grace. He was speaking of forgiveness. And he was speaking of liberation. But there's something critical that is going on here. And the only way to explain this is to tell you this. Jesus misquoted Isaiah 61. And when you look at that, we go, wait, 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 what are you saying? Did he make a mistake? Did he do something wrong? No, no, no. This was something that rabbis would do back in that day. It was a normal thing to do. He took Isaiah 61, he read Isaiah 61, but then he misquotes Isaiah 61. He pulls out one thing and he inserts another. And this is so critical for us as we understand this story and what Jesus was doing. See, Isaiah 61, the text goes on from grace and forgiveness to liberation. The text goes on and it talks about the vengeance on evildoers and on pagans, on all of Israel's enemies. But Jesus didn't quote that part. In fact, Jesus changes Isaiah 61, like I said, when he quoted it. 
He ignored everything about vengeance. He ignored everything about their enemies. He ignored things about retribution. And he added a part from an earlier piece of Isaiah that the people would have recognized. Because the people who were sitting with him in this room would have been students. They would have studied. They would have known the scriptures. And as Jesus is talking, as he's reading Isaiah 61, they would have said, wait, 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 wait. What did he just do? Did, you know, we start looking around. I mean, you've done this before, right? You're listening to a sermon or you're listening to a talk or you're watching a show and you look over and you go, did you, did you hear that? And like, we have DVR and we flip back and like, that's probably what they're trying to do. Like, they're like, rewind that 30 seconds. Did you see what he just did? Did, did you hear what he missed? Wait, did he take that part out? Wait, what did he just put in? And this is so critical for us because they would have noticed this. They would have seen what is happening here. And this impacts how they respond. And how they respond is what we're going to learn from today. So he takes out part of Isaiah 61. He reads Isaiah 58 and inserts into it, as you'll see, this line. Listen to this. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Now listen to this. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? Now here's where Jesus directly quoted, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Now, now hang on, J- jump back. Jill, I'm sorry, I, this is going to be a little hard to do. Jump back to that 4, um, 18 through 19. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Now back to Isaiah 58. He says to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free. This is where Jesus plays loose now with Isaiah 61. He pulls out a part that is about vengeance on enemies. He, he pulls out a part that is about retribution. He, he pulls out this stuff that the people look around and say, we thought the kind of savior you were going to be was the kind that saved us from our enemies. The kind of, peop- uh, kind of savior who judged our enemies. The kind of savior who looked and said, hey, what your enemies have done to you is wrong. What's going on here? What kind of savior is he? And then he tells us to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Going on in, in Isaiah 58, it says, is it not to share your food with the hungry? And to provide the food wanderer with shelter, the I'm sorry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Instead of punishment for Israel's enemies, Jesus began to share that God's grace, love, and mercy were for all people. Hear me here. This is so important for this passage as we understand the mission of Jesus. That in this moment, as he has an opportunity to define what kind of Messiah, what kind of Savior he's going to be, he begins to share that God's grace, love, and mercy were for everyone. Jesus began to share that God's grace and love and mercy are for all people. And then he says that he had come to fulfill another part of Isaiah. The part where it says that God will bless the world through Israel. And that that was happening, Jesus said, 
through him. I wrote it down in my notes this way. Jesus was announcing that God's grace was about to be poured out onto the whole world. And don't miss this. And Jesus knew that the people listening to him would object. Luke 4.23, it says this. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. See, now what's happening, this is so fascinating, is that the conversation has begun to shift. People at first were in awe at Jesus. They look and they say, man, what did he just say? Then they begin to say, isn't this Joseph's son? And sometimes we read this and we think that they're surprised who Jesus is, but we're not thinking about it the way that we should think about it. They're looking at him and saying, wait a minute, this is Joseph's son. Wasn't he raised better than this? This is what he thinks? This is, this is how he talks about the Messiah and the Savior? This is, don't, I thought we knew this guy. And all of a sudden now he's, he's taking things and he's pulling this here and he's teaching us a different way to be. Who does he think he is? And in the wilderness, Jesus faced private temptation to be a certain kind of Savior. And see what happens is now he knows that he faces it again. So he raises the bar. He raises the tension. He says, I know. I know what you're going to do. You're going you're gonna to quote a proverb to me. And then you're going to tell me, hey, do in your hometown what you did in Capernaum. Because see, he knew the crowds wanted miracles and signs for themselves. He knew that the crowd wanted a savior who would save them and condemn their enemies. That's the kind of savior that they were looking for. And Jesus knew that as he continued his ministry, that it become clear that he's a different kind of savior. So he shifted the conversation. Look how it goes on. It says in Luke 4, 24, Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. He knows that they're not going to be happy with what he's going to do here. So 25 says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a se severe famine throughout the land. Now listen, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And we don't have time to get into all these stories, so let me just show, show you what's going on here, what Jesus is doing. He's saying Elijah was sent to help one widow, but not a Jewish one. Elisha healed one solitary leper, but that leper was the commander of the enemy's army. And that's what did it. That's what drove these people to fury, as you're about to see. These stories that Jesus talks about here were about Israel's God rescuing the wrong people. And Jesus was telling them that's exactly what he came to do. They're looking at him and they're saying, wait a minute, all this grace he's talking about, this love he's talking about, pouring out his grace. And he's not talking about enemies at all. And he says, no, I'm not. 
He says, look, 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 look. He said, you're even missing it. You're missing the point. He said, God's love is being poured out on everyone, even the people that you think are the wrong people. It tells us in verse 28 what the people do in response. It says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Now think again, imagine the sounds, imagine that moment, imagine now the tension. You know, what began, I said, imagine the anticipation in this story. Now imagine that anticipation turned into hatred and tension and frustration and anger. Imagine this moment as it begins to shift. The people are losing their minds. All the people in the synagogue were furious and they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now this seems like a kind of a strange addition to this story. But listen, remember Jesus' temptation. He was standing at the top of the temple. The temple that we talked about earlier. Tempted to throw himself off of it and be saved by God. Now he was at a cliff. People ready to throw him off the cliff instead of accepting God's love and grace for their neighbors. Luke doesn't tell us how exactly. He just says that Jesus was saved. And he walked right through the crowd. And what tells me is this. He was going to share God's love and grace with the world, whether the people in the synagogue would come with him or not. See, it's easy to love people that we already love. It's easy to be a neighbor to people you want to live next to and that you want to experience community with. But everything changes when the person next door isn't the person that we'd prefer. When God, when God calls us to love outside the box, sometimes we choose to follow our, our own prejudice instead. And that is not the gospel. That is not good news. I saw this quote from author and activist Shane Claiborne this week. He said, if it's not about loving enemies, not about welcoming strangers, it's not the gospel of Jesus. If it is not good news to the poor, it is not the gospel of Jesus. If it doesn't sound like Jesus or look like Jesus or love like Jesus, it is not the gospel of Jesus. Now that quote is so good, I want to read it again. I, I hesitate to do this. I don't want to get repetitive, but listen, I love this quote so much. Listen again, because this is the exact experience that these people are having in this synagogue. When they hear Jesus pronounce good news, they themselves say, hey, wait a minute, that's not the good news that we thought was good news. That's not good news to us. That sounds like good news to everybody else, but it's not good news to us because all of a sudden it's about us loving our enemies. It's about us caring for all these other people. And Jesus says, now wait a minute, I'm, I'm going to go as far to take Isaiah 61 and insert something else into the text for you to see. The good news isn't about you getting vengeance on your neighbors. It's about not about loving the people you already love. He said the good news is good news poured out on all people. If it's not about loving enemies, not about welcoming strangers, it's not the gospel of Jesus. 
If it is not good news to the poor, it is not the gospel of Jesus. If it doesn't sound like Jesus or look like Jesus or love like Jesus, it's not the gospel of Jesus. Now, you've heard me say before, if it's not good news for everyone, it's not good news for anyone. And I want you to hear where I got that from, why that's so important to me, why it's become a mantra for how I want to live my life and how I want to do ministry. It comes from author Rob Bell from his book, Velvet Elvis. And listen to this. It says, if the gospel isn't good news for everybody, then it isn't good news for anybody. And this is because the most powerful things happen when the church surrenders its desire to convert, convert people and convince them to join. It is when the church gives itself away in radical acts of service and compassion, expecting nothing in return, that the way of Jesus is most vividly put on display. To do this, the church must stop thinking about everybody primarily in categories of in or out, saved or not, believer or non-believer. Besides that these terms are offensive to those who are the un and the non, they work against Jesus' teaching about how we're to treat each other. Jesus commanded us to love our neighbor, and our neighbor can be anybody. In a letter to a group of churches in the region of Galatia, Paul wrote to them about the good news of Jesus, about the gospel. A group of people had infiltrated these churches and begun to teach a gospel of exclusion. And Paul wasn't having any of it. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in, a le in the letter to the Galatians, chapter 1. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. So, say it with me today, wherever you are. And I want you to say it out loud because it needs to be said. And listen, I'm, I'm not asking you to mumble today. I'm not asking you to quietly say this. I want you to say this phrase with me out loud. No matter who's in the room, no matter where you're listening or watching this, wherever you are today, say this out loud with me. Joe, put this on the screen. If it's not good news for everyone, it's not good news for anyone. If it's not good news for everyone, it's not good news for anyone. So let me ask you some questions that come from this today. What would it look like to live as if the good news was for all people and not just the people that we decide? What would it look like to share God's love with reckless generosity? What would it look like during the series to not just say love your neighbor, but do it, regardless of who that neighbor is, where they come from, or how they look different from you? As we learn today, to love like that would look a lot like Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these stories that get written down for us.
that tell us about the life, the teaching, the ministry of Jesus. God, we thank you for these moments where we're convicted because we see ourselves not siding with Jesus, but siding with the crowd. The crowd who looks and says, but I don't want to love all of my neighbors. The part of us that chooses to pick and choose, the part of us that struggles with prejudice. And yet Jesus is so clear. He's so clear in the passage he read. He's so clear in the way that he taught. He's so clear in the stories that he told that God's love is poured out on this world and it is good news for everyone. And he invites us to join him in his calling, in his mission, and in his purpose to be bearers of good news to this world. And if that good news is not good news for anybody, it's not good news for anybody. We thank you for the love of Jesus, for the grace of Jesus, and the forgiveness of Jesus that is good news for everyone. Me, my neighbors, this whole entire world. And it's your name that we pray today. Amen.